Hello and welcome to a Camino del Alma Minute. My name is Ernie Vecchio, a trauma psychologist turned wisdom teacher that is hiking and biking across the United States to remind people that their inner lives matter. Is there any way, is it a process you're talking about going from ego to soul? So, the context that I'm providing is, the, is what's profound. First of all, some absolutes about um, about us as human beings. I am proposing that we spend so much time on when, where, and who we are that we don't get to the what and the why we are. Okay. The when we are is fretting about the past and worrying about the future. Where we are is someplace in between, and who we are is all that egoic stuff, identification. What do I got to do to succeed and adapt in the world? What we are, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the soul came first. We are spiritual beings stuck in a psychological reality. And why we are is to get here in a present tense kind of way and have a reciprocal relationship with the world around us, thus community. And so I'm answering the who, what, when, where, and why. And how I'm doing that uh, is some absolutes that you are a spiritual being trapped in psychological existence, that the soul comes first, predates the ego by almost two and a half years, uh, which is profound, uh, but yet the ego somehow gets stationed because it's externally adapting to the outside world, uh, that you have a, an inner voice. And you guys have heard the ego states in the culture from Freud, like the id, ego, and the superego. Eric Byrne came up with a parent adult child to kind of make it more palatable to the lay public. When I was looking at despair, I actually took the book of Job over to Belize with me and sit on a beach for three months, and I interpreted the entire book of Job as if he were dreaming. In other words, he was having an inside experience to an outside event. Guess what I discovered? I say that I've treated over 10,000 patients in my career, and about five to 6,000 of those were traumatic patients. Job was patient 10,001. What he went through is the exact same thing my patients went through. And guess what was in the book of Job? Ego states. And instead of ego, super ego, and, and uh, parallel child, it was counselor, critic, mediator, and bully. <laughs> so those are your four inner voices. Now, the other thing, and, and that was 3,600 years ago, guys. That predates Christ by a thousand years. And so look what happens to why are there so much bullies in the schools? Why is there so, it's, you know, when you come into the world, is a spiritual being, your spirit is broken. What happens to a broken spirit? It becomes mean-spirited. Everybody in this room has an inner bully. Everybody in this room has a mean-spirited side. If you're moral, you only take it out on yourself. But as you already know, we take it out on ourselves and others, right? Uh, so that broken spirit piece is there. And, that, and so it really answers it, it gives a solution to the bullying problem in the school system and just in general. Carl Jung called this 
ego state, the human shadow. And the shadow is, is valid, and Carl Jung's work is works profound, but the shadow is too confusing to the general public. Bully is much more powerful. Shadow sounds dark and eerie and, you know, and, and kind of evil. But bully sounds like, I can relate to bully. I got a little bit of bully in me. If I, if I say you have a shadow side, I'm probably fight that more than if I say you have a bully, right? And so the other thing that I'm also uh, suggesting and have seen in my work is just that these organs of perception, so the soul informs and orchestrates and guides, human spirit provokes, it's the provocation, the ego, to react or reenact its experience, and the heart points the way. This board of organs of perception is your internal GPS. If they are in opposition to one another, then you are struggling to be here. If they are working together in a symbiotic way, then you are present tense. So what I teach you is how to do that. So the soul guides. The soul, the soul, you know, I call the soul when I work the above observer. Uh, and so it guides, it orchestrates. That's the things happen for a reason. That's the answer to your question. It's because the soul orchestrated it. How many times does the soul do that? Well, three times is a charm, we say in the culture. And things happen for a reason until you get the reason. If you don't get the reason, they keep happening. Right? So the soul orchestrates and guides the human spirit because it longs to be reconnected to the source, provokes the ego. It's the provocation, it's the motivation for the ego to change or to wake up. And then the heart points the way. So the heart really is the compass. So when those four pieces are working in some symbiotic way, in other words, all trying to get to the same goal, which is present tense, then you are. It's as good as it gets, as far as this existence is concerned. If you're in opposition, if any of those organs of perception are in opposition, then you are kind of divided against yourself or divided against your culture. I forgot to say that. That's what guilt is. Guilt is divided against the self. Shame is divided against the culture. I think what I'm trying to, uh, to get the public to understand is this context is needed. We need a universal language to talk about the psychology of who you are as it integrates with the spiritual animal that you are. Mm -hmm. If we don't do that, then we try to bypass it. And this is what I've witnessed across the country, uh, not, in, not in my journey on the bicycle, but as I, I took 2014 to go across the country and speak to my peers, my professional peers, and lots of other spiritual communities. And what I, what I ended up seeing, I would call spiritual bypassing. In other words, they were trying to go around the human ego but, you know, and just embrace the good side of it all. You know, the, the fluffy stuff, right? That part of that. And so spirituality, you can ask 10 people to define that. You get 10 different ways uh, to, to describe it. I am saying that it is a pursuit and understanding of suffering. It isn't a question if you're going to suffer, it's a question of how. And there is useful and useless suffering. We say in the culture, adversity builds character. We forget it, tears it down first. From the ground back up. And so we can't mince words on some of this. That's what I'm trying to say. We can't candy cut some of these things. Human beings are capable of incredible things. Discoveries and inventions and incredible stuff. Anything we can imagine, we can accomplish. But we're also capable of a lot of atrocity, right? I get to pick up the paper and see that. Well, every one of us carries that inside of us. Just because we're only attacking ourselves doesn't make us any less atrocious, right? Yeah. 
And so, and I'm not saying that as a, as a, as a critique, I'm saying it as an observation. When will it come into your, into your awareness? If I cut your legs off. I had two 16-year-old boys. One climbed a telephone pole, grabbed hold of a lap electrical wire, and blew his legs off above the knee. A second 16-year-old boy was in a car accident. He tried to, he was going over a cliff. He tried to jump out of the vehicle, and the door closed on his legs and slammed against a tree above the knee. Both 16 years old, both double amputees. One was getting his GED going on to college, the other one was found in the drugs and alcohol and was suicidal. What do you think set these two kids apart? Where they were before they lost their legs. Now watch this. Where were you when you lost yours? You see how profound that is? Their tragedy becomes your metaphor. And that's what the soul was asking you. Where were you when you lost yours? And guess what determined which was going to adjust and recover faster? The one that was in a more connected, symbiotic place. So you can go ahead and extrapolate and say the kid that was struggling drugs and alcohol was in worse psychological shape. He was more maladjusted, if you will, than the one that was going to college and recovering. He was more interconnected, my point. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking you ought to do a TED talk of some kind. Yeah, I've been told that. Have you been evolving this as you've walked though? I mean, as you've ridden your bike, is it evolving at all? Or are you just maintaining the same? Because, you know, personally, it's a very interesting thing, but it's pretty complicated. It's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. And it seems like... Well, it's actually question-driven. It's not presentation. Right. It's not, it's not a presentation topic as much as it's question-driven. You guys could ask me about your own work, and I could answer your questions versus asking me about my work. You see, uh, how can I help you? What are you stuck with in your own inner work that I could help you with? Um, yeah. You said something about uh, deja vu, mm -hmm. and I experienced that for a while at one point, and I just I want you to explain a little bit more of exactly what that was, basically. Well, I was saying that, that feeling and emoting, uh, the distinction between the two is feeling as a reaction to the immediate moment and an emotion as a reenactment, so it's always past tense. It's tied to a memory, it's tied to a thought, the brain's got it cut and stored away on a hard drive. So it becomes deja vu when you emote it versus feel your way through it. Uh, when you're coming back from any kind of trauma, uh, if you feel your way through it rather than re-experience it, uh, then you'll be able to let it go. If all you do is just keep cycling through the emotions and keep re-experiencing it, the body can't tell the difference between an inside-outside experience, you're actually putting yourself through it all over again. So what I encourage people to do is feel more and emote less when it comes to their trauma. Because emotion takes you off and puts you in your head, which then takes you away from what the body is experiencing. And so, yeah, you can control your feelings you cannot control your emotions, you see. You can make the choice of which one you're going to be. Think of a, of a breakup and you hear a song. You know, everybody's got, oh, that's our song, right? Think of a song. You have a choice when you hear it to go to a good place in that memory or to go to the emotional place in that memory, right? You have a choice in that very moment. It's a millisecond of a choice, but that's that you can make it. And that gives you the sense of control 
over what you're going to do in that moment. Does that, is that useful or helpful? Yes, that's useful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Anything else, guys? Because I really, I really, and I should have said this in the opening statement, I'm actually here for you. I'm not here for me. Well, for me, some of the things you've said, uh, especially using the analogy of the onion, uh, building up the layers and layers after you know, first come forward as a soul, and then the ego building these layers of protection around that light mm -hmm. is a is kind of a neat way of seeing things and maybe a tool. I, what you're describing in my mind and what what I value from what you said is there are tools there to not get lost. A map is sort of, but yeah. that picture of that onion. And especially with the traumatic stuff where it spices through almost all of the layers yeah. of onion makes sense to me because things that have happened in my life have have felt like an injury or something, just don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I was in a good space or in a, in a space where I was able to see those things in another way and say, ah, this is my way out. Or this is... I just have to, one step at a time, I'm not someplace else. I, I became very present, I think, with what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that's the value of what you describe with the traumatic stuff. And then talking about what's else surrounded, about going somewhere else uh, with your life, if you, your new job, new wife, mm -hmm. new, all of those things you can do too, if you want to, but that's not going to get you. Uh, you're just replacing the layers of right. the onion again. Right, you're not going to heal. Yeah. And what and what you're what you're technically trying to do is uh, is to become whole brain. We live in a left hemisphere culture, and if you want to if you want an image for that, the left hemisphere only sees us in the viewfinder of the camera. The right hemisphere sees everything the camera doesn't take in. What is that? That is in context. And so what you're trying to do is to become whole brain. And, uh, and, you know, in that idea of personality and ego development, the experts are saying now, they used to say birth to six, the, the ego is like clay, from six to 12 it becomes a hard fixed container. Now they're saying the brain's not fully formed until we're 30. So, so there's still a lot of adapting going on. But that's what I want, that's the other piece of this, is that the ego gets a really terrible rap in the culture as being the enemy. When the ego is simply an adaptive function, and it's quite good at getting you to work and getting you to take a shower and <clears throat> getting you to do all the survival things in the external world that you need to do. It's quite adept at doing that. But it has no clue about what's going on inside you. And it remembers everything that happens to it. And it's, so it's childlike in its development. And so your, your job, if you will, as a human being, is how do I parent, this is, which is what's good about the about the parent of child idea, how do I parent my ego into the present? For me, it was how do I become the parents I never had to bring me into the present? I mean, it's that kind of thing. To me, you're saying something about shame there. How do you, how do you not go to shame? Instead, simply lead the ego to a place of comfort. Well, the ego had to see its, uh, its, like I said, its perfection and its imperfections. Uh, I did a, I did a talk one time on shame, and somebody asked me how I, how I healed my shame. What, what was the turning point for me? And the realization, the epiphany I had was, I had everybody in the room close their eyes, 
and it was mostly women in the room. It was probably a room with two, three hundred people, but it was predominantly counselors and social workers and nurses, maybe ten men, and the rest of it was women, right? And so I said, I want you to close your eyes and imagine an instrument used to cut an umbilical cord. And once you get the instrument, raise your hand, tell me what it is. Well, I've got scalpel. I said, anything else? Scissors. That was it. They stopped. I said, all right, keep your eyes closed. Now what I want you to do is imagine a hatchet. Imagine a chainsaw. Imagine a toothbrush. And people were squirming in their seats, and I'm going, all right, somebody tell me what you're feeling. Keep your eyes closed. Well, it's more bloodier, it's gorier, it's more painful. And I said, okay, you can open your eyes now. I said, here's what I figured out about shame. We all get cut away from the Creator. The only thing that sets us apart is the instrument used in the cutting. Where my instrument might have been a chainsaw, and yours might have been a toothbrush. And I use analogy and metaphor a lot because the soul speaks in symbols and images. The right hemisphere does that. Visual perception is in that side. And so that's why it's important. That's why we say a picture is worth more than a thousand words. So if you can get an image and a symbol for your stuff, then it's powerful. Anything else? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, and I've got your first name. Lex. Lex, I was going to say Lex. Is that I used to say, get all those layers out of the way, and then we're going to light somebody else's candle. And now that we know that you are light, it's get all the layers out of the way and be, you know, be, the, be the light in the room, so to speak. There's a, there's a, I have a cartoon in my refrigerator where there's a Buddhist teacher carrying a lamp, a lantern in the dark, and a little kid beside him says, Master, is it true that you can see in the dark? He says, yes, I can, my son. He says, well, then why are you carrying that lamp? He says, so nobody will pop into me. <laughs> and that is exactly what the human ego would, would decide. That's a present tense ego. So you're saying that trauma sort of jolts a person into the present. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is on, my legs are gone right now. Yeah, so look at, and look that at, makes you, yeah. Yeah, look at all the uh, midlife books that are out there in the bookstore. You know, that's their trauma. Uh -huh. Yeah, all the midlife books that come out, they come out every year. Everybody's writing a midlife book, right? Uh, yeah, trauma is an opportunity to wake up. And I will tell you that uh, about 3 to 5% stay awake for stuff to go back to sleep. So, in other words, the ego is that powerful. You've got to be wowed by how powerful the ego is. And, and by that, I mean we're creatures of habit. And we go back to our, to our habitual routines. And our, if you don't think that's true, go home. You, when you take a shower, you dry off the same way every time. Try to switch the way you dry off. And try to do it for more than a couple of days. You'll find out that automatically you'll be back to drying yourself off the way you always have. We are creatures of habit. And that's the human ego. So it's an opportunity to, to wake up and to stay awake. And, uh, and to take the adversity and use it in a way that's going to grow you in some way. And that's the benefit. Because the other alternative would be then you're just a victim, you see. You're a victim. And the world is full of victims. And we have so much victimization in the world that it's just like, you know. And that's what people say to me. How did you survive your circumstance? Well, besides that instrument analogy I gave you, is I never saw myself as a victim. You've got to let that go, you see. You're a survivor. And so what do you do with the survival? And that's the point. You can spin in the victimization and get nowhere. And then what you end up doing with it is you can victimize yourself continuously, kind of relive, or you victimize others. The victim becomes a, an identification that you kind of get stuck in.
I'm very thankful that you told us what you had to say. Well, so yeah, it's time for you to get to that. And it's also driven by the questions that people are asking. I don't understand. I'm more of a process person, so I don't understand the process that you're using that helped this woman deal with her trauma. I can't go back and give you the exact process, but I will tell you that I have the capacity to, to take an x-ray of your insides. Okay. And in taking an x-ray of your insides, I get to see what the soul already sees and what the soul already knows. And I can take that information and then present it to you in a way that shows where it's opposing and how to get you to stop being opposition. Okay. So in other words, that counselor, critic, mediator, and bully, I can put you in contact with your internal mediator. And what do you, yeah, and what do you mediate? You're mediating the relationship between the ego and the human spirit. You see. So, so I use the language of the individual. I use the symbols and the images of the individual. That's what helps me move them along. So when I say that I can meet somebody where they are, I can, and dream content, for example. I mean, the, the soul's intent was written based on 200 dreams of my patients. Conversations of uh, the ego and the soul, and the, and the ego and the human spirit. It's that kind of internal dialogue. And so it's so that's that's how I do it. So it, it's a it's a process. I put people in contact with their inner world, their inner scape, if you will, the landscape of your inner life. I call your inner scape. And so I can give you a picture of this inner world and show you what is in opposition, what is blocking you, what is you know, why you're stuck, and then help you move forward and give you a context for it you can wrap your head around and a language for it that you can wrap your head around. I had a client say to me. I don't know what you just did, but I feel better. I don't know what happened, but I feel lighter and I feel less burdened by this. And that's what happens. It's just it's when you let go of ego and get more present tense with it, the way that the world comes off your shoulders for sure. But the goal isn't to attack the ego or reject the ego. This is what the culture does, or medicate the ego. Yeah. You know, that isn't the goal here. The goal is you got to get integrated and, and, and make it realize it's only an external compass, not an internal compass. It does quite well in the outside world. It's worthless internally. The heart is the compass on the inside. And so I tell people that, you know, where the, where the brain is, and the ego is focused on right and wrong, the heart is focused on true or false. And look what happens. I teach that love, truth, and freedom is a physical dimension that you can choose to live inside of. It's a place. It's not information. So then do you believe that when people say, like, you have to work through your trauma, work through your trauma, I know that's a big thing within psychology, and, you know, when you go and you see counselors and therapists, they want you to work through your trauma, you know, if you're a drug addict or if you're, you know, just in a really lonely place in your life, work through your trauma. Is, would you say that is the solution when people are in their lows, is to work through the trauma? Well, I think, with the way you're phrasing that question, I would, I would say you need to grieve your loss, which is totally different than work through your trauma. We all need to grieve whatever it is we feel we've lost, but that we ultimately need to forgive ourselves and forgive whatever the provocator was and let it go, right? So working through it sounds like that there's a right and a wrong way to do it, and there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Letting yourself grieve. Letting yourself grieve. Letting yourself be in it. And, and here's, a, here's a profound piece, guys, and I'm glad, you, I'm glad you asked the question because I wouldn't have said this before. One of the things that blew my mind as I was uh, treating my patients over the years is how we define compassion in this culture. Now, compassion happens to show up on the intelligence test that psychologists give. 
And so not only was I uh, seeing this on my trauma patients, I was seeing it in the general population because I was still evaluating the general population, right? And I, I don't want to trap anybody, but how would you define compassion? Did you have well, empathy for the person? Love, empathy. What else did you say in that? Empathy. Empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel that you understand them, you understand your liking like to them and, and that great, great. Yeah. so you guys realize that you're in like the, the top three percent five percent of the population that you gave me that definition most people say that it's uh, loving another person caring for another person uh, being there for another person so it implies suffering for them and that's what blew my mind is is that a very large percentage of people think that compassion means to suffer for another human being it actually means to suffer with them. So look at the difference between for and with. For is sacrifice and martyrdom. Look at all the nurses and the teachers and the helpers that burn out because of their suffering for their patients. Now, why did I bring that up? Because if you're off one degree on a compass from your starting point, the further you get from the compass, the further you are from the destination. For versus with is a big deal. So back to your original question. Working through your trauma while you're suffering with yourself. Not working through your trauma while you're suffering for yourself. Because for yourself is victim. And with yourself is transformation. With yourself is a catharsis, actually. And that's what you were saying before earlier about the cutting through the layers. If I'm not cutting your legs off, then you have to melt it. Well, what melts the ego? Suffering. You're not going to melt it without it. In other words, transform it. And what is the, the distinction between an epiphany and a catharsis? People know an epiphany is a light bulb going off. Something that wasn't clear before is now clear. What's a catharsis? Purging of ego. You go to bed on Tuesday, one person, you get up on Wednesday and you are a different individual, and you can go back. If somebody held a gun to your head, you couldn't go back. That's a catharsis. The only time that happens is through suffering. And then who walks into that voluntarily, right? right. So, so I say to people, what if you have inside of you a reservoir already of all the suffering you need to go through? There's nothing else you need to do. You don't need to go out and get some new suffering. you got plenty inside of you. All you got to do is convert it into useful suffering. Use it in a way that it begins to melt the ego into a present tense place, you see. And the same thing as being present with your grief. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, being present is, is suffering with the grief versus suffering for it. You know? you know, it's being compassionate. And so guess what? You know, we... We know what self-confidence is, and self-esteem, and self-worth. What is self-love? And people don't realize it's being defined all over the, the culture in different kinds of ways. Self-love is suffering with oneself. Thank you for listening to Camino del Alma Minute. Again, my name is Ernie Vecchio, a trauma psychologist and wisdom teacher that has created a context for your adversity that once you understand it will absolutely change your life. You can follow my pilgrimage as I continue to cross the country at both ErnieVecchio.com and InnerLivesMatter.com. Hope to see you on the trail. Mm -hmm.